0: and welcome to Happy Single Mums, a podcast surrounding real single mummy life. So here's your host, me, Khalifa. Hey guys, welcome to the Happy Single Mums podcast. I'm your host, Khalifa. Today we have a chap called Harry Burden. He is a portrait photographer and he um, is amazing because I've seen a lot of his work. And the reason why I asked him to come onto the podcast was because he has um, a book called Single Dads where he has got loads of pictures of different single fathers and their stories as well and I find that we kind of need to see that more often and remove the stigma of single parenthood because there's thousands upon thousands of single parents worldwide with ba- a variety of different reasons how they became a lone parent. So when I did see your um, the portrait book, I just thought, yes, it's so refreshing to actually have a different angle of single parenthood. So please tell the audience a bit about yourself and how you came up with the magnificent idea. I know it's your second book because your first book was about the Holocaust. And yeah, I know that you, you mentioned in one of your interviews that it's kind of part of you but you've never really lived it but looking through the the people's eyes of how they experienced it kind of brought it back to life so
1: um yeah I've spoken a lot (laughs) so please tell the audience a bit about yourself okay so I am a portrait photographer I've never really done anything else uh for the first sort of probably I, I just gravitated towards doing portraits of people rather than landscapes or anything else. When you're a photographer, you have to start. To, it was before Instagram, before mobile phones, really. Uh, you know, I've been doing it for 30 years. And so basically, I drifted I drifted towards doing people and because I, I like sort of recording the relationship I have with the person on the day and interacting and that kind of it, craving intimacy, maybe, or, or connection. And I think if you're good at photographing people, it's inevitable that you end up photographing celebrities. So for the first sort of 15, 20 years of my career, and and I still do them now, I kind of do portraits of famous people. So... I, you know, I photographed Stephen Merchant uh, last week for The Guardian, you know, so um, but in parallel with that, when I reached sort of middle age and I I sort of split up with my ex uh, and I sort of got to a point in my life where I was kind of reassessing my values and what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I think I think really um, it's important that your life has meaning and that you feel that you'll you'll have a creative out, 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 you know, output. And and I realised that um, it's seductive doing celebrities, but you know everyone's interested to know what David Beckham's like or or the Spice Girls or whatever. But ultimately, it's quite banal uh, and ephemeral. And so I sort of decided to do projects that I I had skin in the game, that I was kind of committed to and would enrich me in a way that um, perhaps, you know, being commissioned to do these portraits of famous people didn't. And so, yeah, my, my dad was a Jew, so I did, the, I did portraits uh, of, of Holocaust survivors in, in a way at, at the beginning, probably just to explore an, a part of my identity. Um, you know, I sort of had, I grew up in Devon. Although I was born in New York uh, and so I never met any Jewish people because it's quite kind of monocultural down down here. You know, I spent, you know, 20 years living in Hackney, but I'm sort of back down here now. But so so basically, you know, it was an opportunity. You know, I had these little events like when I was a kid, my dad sort of told me about the Holocaust. And then subsequently, I remember being on a bus in on a school trip to Berlin. And there were a load of kids. They were just being kids. They were being silly. You know, it was in the 80s or whatever, or maybe even 70s. I think it was the 80s. And that, you know, it was kind of less enlightened back then. I remember these kids at the back of the bus, they were looking out the window and they were going, look at all those dirty Jews. And they... They didn't really know what they were saying, but I just remember feeling ashamed that I didn't sort of like speak up and sort of say, you know, and and I, I've always tried to sort of speak up in situations like that. And So, yeah, it was kind of an exploration of my identity, but then it was all obviously an important historical artefact because, you know, most of the people that I photographed, are, uh, probably over half of them are no longer with us now. And there will come a time when when there isn't anyone with first hand experience and. And then you end up in a situation where people who deny the Holocaust, their ideas can can get credence because there's no one to say, actually, well, if the Holocaust didn't happen, what happened to all my relatives? You know. And so, then the next project was, as I said, I I, I split up with my ex, and uh, I realised instinctively, uh, you know, my dad probably didn't have uh, very good uh, parent, parental instincts. You know, he kind of was quite selfish and didn't really wasn't really that into being a dad but I kind of as soon as I got four children and and as soon as they uh, they arrived you know I was just like they changed everything you know uh, everything becomes different um I talk about it at the beginning of the book you know how your everything is heightened uh, and your perimeter of potential suffering is enlarged because they become you know anything that happens to them you sort of feel it kind of viscerally as you know um uh, you know it's sort of being a parent kind of is a is is something that kind of changes your whole perspective and how you see society because you become part of a greater whole and you sort of see you sort of are more invested in the idea of caring for your for other people's children as well as your own in it. and so I realized that my role as a father was sort of more important really than than photographing my career or having status or being successful and i mean there's no point in being a great photographer or an artist if your parents if your kids think you're you know like an arsehole yeah, <laughs> and so uh, yeah so i kind of uh, with that in mind i got asked by a charity to do some portraits uh, to give away a portrait session because in my guise as a as a celebrity portrait photographer um so they asked me to do this portraits to give away a portrait session to raise awareness for their charity and their charity basically Helped single parent dads uh, cope because quite often dads aren't as domesticated, and they they gave them cooking uh, lessons and and just sort of helped them integrate because quite often it's not the default. So often the, the dads are kind of viewed with a bit of suspicion if there's a single parent dad. They're not kind of they don't kind of network in the way that this, maybe the single parent mums do uh, and support one another, and and so it kind of provided those sorts of services. And we I found it hard through the charity, uh, I, they asked me to give away this charity, uh, this charity sort of portrait. And so I suggested that I do a project because I've been thinking about doing something. Uh, and then basically they didn't, they weren't able to, give, to get me a whole lot of dads, but I sort of took the ball around with it and used, the, used my social media to find people. And then eventually, uh, got in, in, in the beginning of lockdown, I sort of found a publisher uh, and it came out in the spring this year, and it's uh, it's called Single Dad, and it's uh, on Hoxton Mini Press, which is a sort of arty art publisher in in Hackney in East London. And they sort of uh, they did a really nice job, so I'm really it's great to see it out there. It's a much more personal book than the Survivor, a portrait of the survivors of the Holocaust, which was my first book, which is a much bigger book and and you know got published all over the world, and and there are a lot more copies of it out there. Yeah. But that's basically the story. <laughs>
0: That's absolutely awesome that's refreshing as well in regards to the holocaust um i actually read i can't remember what the studies i was looked for it afterwards i read um a study about people that were women that are pregnant during the holocaust and um, after they gave birth to their their children they, the, ch- the child suffered from depression and they actually did a study on, on the the children's children as well and there was like a line of depression that has been passed yeah. down so yeah um I think it's really important to understand history um and I'm, mm. I'm happy that you actually brought it back to life in regards to seeing people that have experienced that and learning mm-hmm. from, from our past as well that's the thing that i think we need to echo like learn from the past that we should it, and as well as fixing traumas and i love the fact that in our society now we have so much information i think it's like information overload kind of thing but if you know that you have an issue if you know you've experienced trauma you have to deal with it yourself because you can mm. pass it down to your children's children unknowingly mm. and unknowingly as well
1: there is that there, there is actually a, a it's called epigenetics and there was a, a box series a box set that came out and it's called transparent and it's sort of about this guy that becomes a, a trans woman uh, and he transitions but other other peripheral sort of um Uh, subjects that it covers during this 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 I think there's several seasons now that it was on HBO is epigenetics because one of the one of it they're they're Jewish the family is Jewish and one of the the siblings there's two two sisters and a brother she starts to feel that she's um suffering trauma from her grandmother who was involved in the holocaust and of course that I think it does make sense that you know if you're living in a permanent state of stress, I mean, I'm reading Hadley Freeman's book about her family. It's called uh, House of Glass, I think and it's, the, their name was Glass and they they were basically in in, in France and they were involved, originally from Poland. And it sort of talks about the Holocaust and the, the perpetual state of anxiety when you're kind of an underclass. I mean, before the Nazis came along, Jews were being persecuted hundreds of years before that, you know, um, with pogroms and stuff like that. And that kind of what happens is, in interestingly enough, going back to the single parent dad book, I went to see a psychologist and, uh, he sort of, I talked to him about my father and his, uh, and he, as I say, he wasn't a great dad, you know, and, and I remember him sort of telling me about how he was really into boxing and stuff like that. And he talked about how he sparred with his dad, who was actually called Harry, and his dad lost his temper and actually beat him up. And my dad was sort of quite proud, you know, because my dad's father was quite a hard guy, you know, and um, the, the psychologist pointed out that In cultures where you have an underclass and there's a lot of violence being meted out to Jews in the form of pogroms and where they're kind of random acts of violence towards this this kind of other class that's sort of seen as disgusting and kind of beneath uh, contempt, sort of lacking humanity. What happens is that a lot of that violence is then uh, taken back into the family and and taken out on the children and so that's probably you know something that uh, it's it's an, another way that it sort of passes down through the generations uh, where there is kind of um trauma and and, and and dysfunction it kind of carries on generation to generation yeah. as well as in but this this study is actually it says it's in the genes you know it's genes. called epigenetics yeah oh,
0: yeah but i also feel that what our children or what we've experienced from our our parents because um up until the time I saw a therapist I didn't realize that I was seeking kind of the same kind of man like the narcissistic men so and my father was wasn't really around he lived in New York so he used to come like maybe like once or twice a year just drop us money and then just go so when I started dating um in my adult years um I found that if I was dating someone and they bought me a gift I quantified that as love you know, even mm-hmm. if there, there was an offense there, so I have relearned and I've gone through therapy how to love and what love is, but I oftentimes mm-hmm. feel that what we lack from our parents we it's kind of it teaches us a lesson on what not to do for our own children in a way, mm-hmm. so I, I'm actually grateful at the fact that he wasn't there because now I know what to model for my son. Mm-hmm. So I think that oftentimes that's it's kind it's bad, but it's good in a way, because we know what not to do. How the prototype but, that they have, I didn't like that. So I'm gonna make sure I'm better for my child for my child and he's gonna be better for his own children as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's really interesting. In fact, um uh, after the book came out, you know, do you know the school of life, you know, Alain de Botton? Uh, so, uh he's a, a sort of philosopher and a public intellectual really and he's done books about architecture and and philosophy and sort of psychotherapy and, and it's really interesting the school of life is a huge kind of uh, uh kind of organization a platform uh for the the common good really helping people get help and so on but he, they also publish books and he's asked me to do a book on divorce wow. uh, and interview people because he really likes single dad and he wants the same approach so i'm actually looking for people who uh, who've actually been divorced or in the process of being divorced or are, have have got divorced, uh, you know, uh, for and then to do a portrait of them, and then get some, ask them how they got divorced, and then and you know why they got divorced, and then and then what they've learned from it. So maybe you could be one of my subjects.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I've got I've got loads of recommendations because the thing is, studies have shown that the, the um divorce has gone up, especially during the pandemic. It has mm. skyrocketed. I think that oftentimes work and being out were were kind of a pacifier for what's actually happening in a relationship. Mm. So now people are like, of course, I say relationships are like mirrors, you know? And mm. oftentimes you don't like what's looking back at you. And I think that that's why so many people have just, their relationships have, have broken, broken down. I mm. also feel like we're not really taught, we are not given a healthy example of how to love, how to tolerate one another, and understanding mm. each other as well. If they need to have classes about communication in schools, yes, maths and English are excellent, but just how to handle conflict, how to forgive ultimately, because mm. I don't think we're taught how to forgive, we're just told forgive. To but then oftentimes mm. it's just like there at the pits of our stomach and then there's another offence and there's another offence and then like it comes up like a volcano. So I think there mm. are things that we still we need to teach our children. We need to learn for ourselves not to damage an, another person because the think there's a quote that says hurt people hurt people, so you need mm. to make sure you are fully ready and um, even whilst you're separating you have you might have to deal with that person again if you haven't forgiven your child's gonna feel that kind of resentment because Mm. it's they're still part of your child so we have to just you know get to a place whereby all right we're not happy in our relationships and we're willing to let go and move on
1: i i I definitely realized instinctively uh, because basically my my long my relationship i have four three children with my original uh wife and we kind of um we couldn't communicate we we were we were kind of quite both quite dysfunctional backgrounds and we just couldn't really communicate with each other and the whole process has been one of great learning and i basically got to the situation where you know due to me probably not meeting her emotional needs and being too involved my work and probably a narcissist myself because i had my dad as a role model I basically sort of um you know got to the situation where she sort of wanted to be with someone else and i realized that the best way to kind of win her back the best way to not win her back and get on with my life the best thing for the children was to accept the situation and realize that if someone's in love then you know you basically have to embrace that and you have no control you have to just let it go and work on being uh, having a different kind of relationship and that's what sort of manifested itself and it was it was actually quite uh, an amazing process because I never would have envisaged when I was in my twenties, being somebody who would be that able to do that. And then, you know, subsequently I had another child with my, with my now ex, we were together for about sort of 10 years. Um, but that, I probably rushed into that relationship and didn't take my time to learn the lessons that you have to learn. And it's really, since I've been single, um, you know, I kind of really, took my time and I just got to know myself and I really sort of was much more mindful and also there's a really good book actually you might be interested (laughs) I'm going a bit off off track off tangent here but there's it's a fantastic book and it's it's about attachment and it basically the premise of the book is that we have different attachment styles in relationships
0: oh is it called attached
1: yes yeah yes I've read the book it's awesome it's awesome yeah and it and I kind of it's my daughter's. A, um she's 25 and she's a psychologist and obviously she's dating and everything. And so we talk about it and we're doing a project together actually called First Drawn. I don't know if you saw it on my website. So since the beginning of 2019, whenever we meet up, she draws a picture of me and I photograph her. And it's sort of about our relationship and the passing of time. Um, we've done about sort of 50 now. Um, and, then, and then I sort of put the two together, the drawings and the photographs, but she's a psychologist and uh, she's very wise you know and she she got me onto that book about attached and i realized that i probably similar to you i was finding myself attracted to women that were kind of avoidant and who were kind of not really that were a challenge you know in terms of um not able being able to be intimate and i found that quite attractive you know and you kind of you don't really know any better you don't really you you unthinkingly kind of observe observe your parents and and the dynamics and you know my mum is great, but she's quite a sort of cold person, you know. Uh, in some respects, you know, with her parenting style, and I think you kind of that becomes your your you know the kind of archetype, like maybe with your dad, you know, the the thing that kind of you look you you unwittingly sort of look for.
0: Yeah, but I do strongly believe that our parents did as the best they could in their circumstances because we have to go back to to, yeah, to yeah. their um, situation, and we yeah. I had to come to a point whereby okay, this is I didn't have certain things. But I can make a choice on whether I want to move forward. And I um, I love philosophy. There's this chap called René Descartes. He says, I think, therefore I am. So we actually have to take, I, I've got that tattooed on me as well. So we actually have to take ownership of the choices, even down to like the our inner critic, you know, like we have to take ownership of what we are thinking. Even if you're divorced, you're separated, you're a single parent, your career isn't going where you want it to go, you have to take ownership. Um, there's also a Japanese custom that I tell because I, I speak to a lot of single moms on my platform and they mm. say to me that oh I'm so broken how am I going to find love again and I tell people that we are all broken nobody mm. is fully whole if people were fully whole we wouldn't need people like your daughter that are a psychiatrist because mm. even people that had the magnificent childhood they might have been lacking one thing you know mm. no one is actually whole so this Japanese custom is called ting ting Tusi. I don't know whether I'm pronouncing that right so it's k i n g s u Gi King mm. yeah, maybe I say it wrong. So what they do is that they have broken glass, yeah, but they never throw away broken glass. They actually stick it together with pure gold. They stick it, all the pieces back stick together with pure gold. And I often tell the mothers on my platform, whenever you feel broken, it's your choice what you want to stick back together. You can either stick it back with unforgiveness, and um, anger, bitterness, and um, resentment, or you can stick it back with pure gold. You know, like mm. you make the choice to put yourself back together again. Mm and be
1: stronger than before it's a bit like the the nietzschean thing isn't it Uh,
0: yes
1: where you where you mend stronger you know where you've been broken you you can develop this sort of um heightened sort of sense of empathy you know you can kind of it helps you understand the world when you sort of experience these things so it is kind of a gift you know Uh, sometimes The childhood you have, it might have been difficult at times, but it, but quite often it makes you the interesting person you are.
0: By all means, and I do think that you have to, life will teach you a lesson. Hence, why we said, I said earlier about dating the same person, you would only you carry on doing the same things till you learn that lesson. You know, mm. so life is such a beautiful thing that it will carry on giving you the same lesson up until the time you say no, no, no. I've identified this and I'm walking another way. That's when you actually learn your lesson. So let's move on to some of your um, photography. So mm. what advice, because I've got loads of girlfriends that really want to get into photography and they're so afraid. They're like, oh, where, would, where do I start? What advice would you give people who are wishing to actually get into photography?
1: Um, I would say that there's probably never been a better time. I mean, you're carrying around these amazing cameras um, which you can kind of get fantastic results and they're very intuitive. I mean, when I started, I mean, I do think there are sort of fundamentally male traits and there are sort of fundamentally female traits and we kind of live in a world where we, we which we construct whereby we kind of acknowledged that. But at the same time, we we just see people as people. So there are plenty of women who have lots of male traits and vice versa. You know, I probably have good female traits in, in terms of being able to communicate well and having empathy because it's, ne- it's necessary to do what I do. And I think in the past, photography was all about male traits. So it was all about sort of obsessive control of, of attention to detail, you know, these kind of when i started in the 80s uh, you know it was mainly men in these big studios in london and you know they had this kind of mystique and very powerful char- charisma and and people bought into that and everything uh, and whereas now you know it's much more sort of polymorphous like you know everyone's on the internet everyone's carrying phones it's much more accessible it's less that you don't have to really learn this technique in a kind of obsessive slavish way you kind of can just pick up a phone and, and and it's more about capturing moments and sort of actually can certainly in the realm of portraiture it's about sort of creating creating an intimate moment um there in in what i would say there are a couple of things i would say first i would say on a practical level on a really boring prosaic level the most important thing is is back up your pictures because there's no point in taking really great pictures. If you did manage to take a really amazing picture that you love and brings you so much joy of your son or whatever, yeah. there's no point in in having it if you if you then sort of don't back it up. So don't just use the cloud. You know, buy a hard drive. Especially, I'm assuming they're going to be digital. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of backed up if you're shooting on film. There's a sort of a hipster contingent that loves shooting on film and everything, and the negatives are sort of like backups in a way. So that's a really boring thing to get out of the way. But I would say just start noticing light and and really being a photographer is having an opinion about the way you re- arrange things within a frame yeah. and so start to sort of notice what you like start looking at other photographers you know maybe on instagram or whatever and developing uh, opinions about how you frame things how you see the world that's really the essence of photography it's also with what you do you know i think the digital sort of shift that we've seen um has really kind of em- the people that are successful i think it, it, it they emphasize the very nature of humanity which is storytelling which is which is cre- understanding narrative that's how we remember things you know when we remember things it's, we're not accessing a hard drive we're actually sort of it's a creative act and so I think basically photography is part of that it's a, it's a storytelling it's, a, it's so think about the narrative think about what you're trying to say I mean there's two things I always say to students when they're starting out is you know if they're doing a project I always say um th- about the subject that they're considering you know how how do you feel about this subject and what are you trying to say and you know initially, it's fine to just do a picture because it's decorative and you want to put it on the wall but but the really powerful stuff you know maybe says something it's it's kind of it wants more than that you know, and that's that's kind of the what the bigger big advice I'd give, which is think about what you're trying to say you know um because it's a wonderful storytelling medium you know yeah
0: so i I love the fact that um Pictures actually convey so much emotions so that you can even be on Instagram for, for example, and then just stop. I think that that's when you know a picture is is amazing when it stops you in your tracks. So in this fast-paced society as well, like everyone's, I call it, I call our generation Uber generation. How then do you manage to catch that magnificent photo? Like what? What, what about if you or you're having burnout? How do you get inspired, for example?
1: Well, I would, I would rather than. I mean, there's lots of different types of photography. So what you're sort of referencing is probably like documentary photography when you're a a street photographer and it's fly on the wall kind of thing. But, what well, I would say is you there's nothing to stop you sort of slowing things down and it's a wonderful you know if you see see someone and and they look really amazing you know it's a great uh the camera can be a a, a sort of a key to kind of a, a, bur- a burgeoning friendship so you might say I just think your style is amazing can I t- can I take a portrait and then you end up having a conversation it's it's like a, there's a photographer called Tom Stoddart. Um, he's a war photographer. And I remember he always said that photography is a champagne lifestyle on a beer salary. But it is it is a champagne lifestyle. So, you know, as a result of doing what I do, you know, you end up um, being the eyes of history, but on a more kind of you know, day to day basis, you know, if you have a camera in your hand, or, or, is, or even your phone, if you see someone, you know, you can sort of stop and you can take them into a nice pool of light, and you can make a portrait of them or whatever. And then you can send them the picture on Bluetooth onto their device, and then they can share it on their Instagram and so on. I think it's, it's it, rather than kind of Sort of watching life go by, you can kind of you can use it as a means to kind of engage with people and you know cultivate relationships and and they're kind of it's a great excuse. It's like it, you can have an authentic exchange. I mean, the best pictures come out of an authentic exchange.
0: Awesome. So
1: talking about best pictures, who has been or what's what is your best picture? <laughs> um, the pictures that kind of oh you'd expect me to say this, but the pictures that kind of I'm proudest of are really the pictures of my children. Um, I've got a picture that I love. My daughter hates it. And it was when we were actually, I was splitting up from her mum. And so she was sort of coming and staying with me. You know, we were taking in turns and, and I remember she was in her bedroom. And, and actually, it was funny because I went digital and then I had my old film camera, this big, huge camera, and I just wanted to try it out because I noticed a lot of people were shooting on film. I shot one roll of her in, in the bedroom and she was reluctant to do it so she's sort of grumpy and teenagery, and she's about 15 and she hates this picture but I love I love this picture so much I mean I've got it up in my house but she's forbid me putting it on my website or on the Aww. internet or anything like that because she actually she actually works for Facebook now um, she's a, a a researcher in fact she's the youngest researcher in the in the oh, wow. UK so uh yes yeah, so I'm very, I'm I, obviously I have sort of mixed feelings about facebook because they're in the news at the moment with all yeah. that you know maybe they need to get reined in but but basically um you know she's aware of the power of stuff being online because of her work and so on so it's nowhere to be seen except on my 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 uh, bedroom wall but i love this picture so um but but there have been sort of highlights there are sort of pictures that at the time they seem sort of frivolous i remember I remember the Spice Girls are a good example. I remember photographing them and it was roughly about the time that Polly was born, around 96. And I remember thinking, what am I doing? I I went to Bangkok to photograph them and then I was in Las Vegas photographing them the following year, 97. But I remember thinking when I was in Bangkok, who are these? You know, I'm I'm not really that into their music or anything like that. Uh, Although having photographed them four times have been on stage with them, you know, that you do get into it. Any anyone who's talented, you're up on stage, you realize that it, it they're not a complete confection. I mean, they they were they're very talented, unusual people, you know, otherwise they wouldn't have got the success they did. But I remember thinking, oh, what am I doing? And then we were up on this, we were on this um tower block and we and it was partly built in bangkok and i did this photograph of them on top of the roof and that was a kind of cliche and and it was you know it was quite dramatic and everything but it was very much of its time and then they just came and sat down and relaxed and i got this frame that was a genuine moment so you're always looking for a bit some truth that sort of just manifests itself and those are the kind of like magical moments i mean it really does you feel really invigorated after taking pictures because um I realized, actually, through the process of, you know, uh, splitting up with Jane, my my ex, I sort of did various things that I'd been scathing about, you know, like going and seeing a psychologist and uh, doing Vipassana meditation, which is a 10-day retreat where you just get up at four, you're just meditating every day, and it's funny because I made, I had this realization that the reason photography makes me sort of, it invigorates me and makes me feel alive you know is because uh you know we're we're told that we should be sort of more present and in the moment um when you're taking pictures you can't be anything else it's probably like performing if you're singing or doing anything creative like that you get into a flow and you're being playful and you're not you're not thinking about the past and future you're totally in the present and with photography you're literally capturing moments and so um yeah kind of uh definitely Feel that it, I forgot the point I was going to make, but definitely uh, feel that when that when that happens, that's when the magic happens, and that's when you know rather than creating a picture, you kind of alive to the possibility of something just falling in your in your lap, like this picture of the Spice Girls. They just sat down. The picture's in the National Portrait Gallery in the in the, in the permanent archive, you know, and so it's a definitive picture of, of one of the most photographed bands, you know, in the world. So you know that you've done something that is kind of um, gonna stand the test of time. And like 20, 20 years later now, people are kind of looking at the Spice Girls like, they're really important and everything. And there was a, you know, I just got interviewed about this picture for on, for Sky Arts, you know, for a programme about my favourite shot. Um, so they, they focused on that picture and a picture of Baroness Thatcher that I did with her eyes closed, which you might've seen on my website. Yeah, um,
0: that picture, awesome. Yeah. Absolutely awesome. Can I ask how she was? <laughs>
1: You know, that's that's an interesting one because um, my sort of politics were informed in, in adversity with Thatcher. You know, I didn't, I wasn't a big fan. Um, I remember being excited uh, that we were going to have our first uh, female prime minister, yeah. but most creative people tend to sort of tack towards the left politically. They don't tend to be conservatives. I mean, there aren't many conservative artists or, or but there are a few, you know, uh, I guess Tanya West, you know went to see trump <laughs> which is pretty strange but basically um what was weird was that i'd spent all this time i remember i remember sort of being excited because i was a kid that she was going to be this first and she was kind of cartoon-like yeah. and a bit of a caricature and then you know i went to college and then we i went marches against her and everything and then to finally meet her she was really courteous and, uh, fastidiously polite and 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 kind and not, and she and she was suffering a bit from dementia, so it was kind of um, it was interesting actually. And I always think that uh, politically the safest, you know, the most most sensible people occupy the middle ground. Mm-hmm. I think if you're extreme left or extreme right, you start to become the same side of the same coin. Uh, whereas it's uh, it's it's the middle ground. And actually, I had to acknowledge. To her, that you know, she ch- did change the political landscape, and she was this incredibly iconic figure, and definitely preferable to the career politicians that we have now, like Boris Johnson, you know, or or David Cameron, who are kind of really just careerists and come from very privileged backgrounds. She didn't come from that, that privileged a background. I mean, she was a grammar school girl. She didn't go to Eton or or the, the female equivalent of Eton. So. Yeah.
0: Um, how have you been able to express yourself during the pandemic?
1: Has it been difficult for you, or you're just? <laughs> <laughs> it's been I, without wishing to trivialise, you know what has been a horrendous um, time for many. I mean, I it I did I'm kind of my personality is I'm very I, I think you're similar actually I can tell you you tend my 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 shrink sort of said to me you're very good at consoling yourself so i will try and like look at my marriage and i'll try and put i'll try and take the, the best bits out of it and to learn and grow and so on and so i just i just actually found it was quite good because when in a normal day-to-day kind of uh, life i find myself thinking about other people and thinking have i achieved enough this day today you know and it, when the whole world stopped you had an you had an excuse to sort of just hang hang out with my son and do some silly stuff and you know uh, I also um, I looked at my life sort of quite rationally as a cost benefit analysis so for instance you know I just thought I mean my industry you know printed media is an industry in terminal decline I mean basically uh, the model is not viable anymore so magazines and newspapers used to be paid for by the advertising revenue and now that advertising revenue has gone to Google and Facebook and so I sort of looked at other revenue streams and so I forged a relationship with a gallery that sell editions of my my famous portraits. Um I as something as banal as getting it, I got a lodger in my house, you know, um which has been fantastic actually because it's nice to have have when I haven't got my son because I have my son sort of 50% of the time, my youngest, the other the other three are kind of adults now. Yeah um when I have him he's 10 you know it's great but when I haven't got him you know you might feel a bit lonely so it's been quite nice having having a lodger you know and it's also a bit of extra revenue so yeah I kind of I I did a lot of gardening I sort of did a lot of decorating. you know DIY all that sort of stuff so without you know trivializing it um I mean I'm sure it's a lot harder being in London you know um I I actually want to move I um during the pandemic I realized I don't
0: really want to kind of want to live near the countryside like mm-hmm. um i just i want to be able to open my window because i live in in east london yeah um, we're in hackney i'm in I'm oh, right. stratford
1: okay yeah,
0: yeah so i'm in stratford and it's just really noisy i want to like just live near the countryside just have fresh air <laughs> mm-hmm. so i found out that during the pandemic that's what i kind of made decisions on on where I want to be, what I want to do, and where yeah. I want to raise my son as well.
1: You can make it happen. I mean, I mean, you know, um, you're doing what you do. Doesn't you? Don't have to be based. I mean, this is the thing. When I started, you had to have an O1 number. So yeah, I mean, kind of, uh, you had to. It, then it became O207 or O208. So you had to, you had to show that you were kind of like for real that you lived in London, that you were like one of these guys in their studios. And now uh, probably the most successful British photographer, way more successful than David Bailey, is a guy called Martin Parr. And he's a global artist, brilliant photographer. He just started a foundation in Bristol because he's, you know, put a lot of his energy back into promoting other people's work. But he he's lived in Bristol all, all his life, you know. And I'm actually photographing um, a photographer up in in Birmingham tomorrow. So now I think young people, they can't afford to mostly, mostly, maybe you're an exception, but mostly I think it's, they, I would have struggled to live in London, you know, when I was starting out, it's too expensive. And I was, in London, I was in London last week and I stayed, cause my eldest two, they live in Bethnal Green. And then I was in Walthamstow and it's like, it's so noisy and the traffic is so bad. I mean, it's got really, really bad. And, um, it's sort of not conducive to a serene, uh, you know, calm kind of mindset. And it's amazing when I'm when I'm down here. You know, you, people walking, driving. I mean, it's a romanticized image, but everyone's like waving at each other and it's like, how, how, how do you do? And everyone goes, you know, everyone's just sort of on a different kind of. Um, uh, and also yeah sorry go ahead you
0: not find that because i found like because my dad lives in um he was he lived in new york all his life um mm-hmm. and, but now he's moved to new jersey but all my siblings are in america at the moment so i've got older brother in chicago sister in new jersey and a younger brother in new jersey as well and when every time i go over um to to america i find that they're really friendly in comparison mm-hmm. to yeah, over yeah. Here. and it, I, even when i sit on a train on the central line if i if i I, we don't smile we don't smile mm. to each other we're mm. not we're not very um gentle towards each other when i'm in america as you're walking a complete stranger will say hey how's your day how you doing you know mm. and even if they find out that you're a tourist because of your your voice your your um, voice they they just mm. they want to know about you they care it might not be genuine but i just wish we had mm. that kind of you know that kind of relationship with other people like just wanting to look you know, we're losing the human touch i know with the british we're yeah. meant to have like a stiff up, upper lip but i wish we were more like that and i find it even hotter countries like if you, if whenever i go to like the caribbean or any other country, mm. they're just really intrinsically friendly
1: <laughs> yeah i totally agree with you i mean i did a i i used to work for you know, NGOs and stuff, like I went to Guinea with Tom Hiddleston, Mm -hmm. and then we'd go around, uh, you know, for UNICEF, so we'd go around uh, properly remote uh, communities, uh, and and we'd be sitting around a campfire with these people, like 12 hours from the capital of, of Guinea, properly in the middle of nowhere, with only like a generator and stuff, and I just thought, these people are so much happier, they're just sort of like you know they might not have like all the they might not have Facebook and all this kind of self marketing to each other and this kind of very competitive atomized individualized existence, but they're they're a proper community and they kind of that's how we've evolved to be is in a small small community and we all know each other and we all kind of support one another. So yeah, I totally agree with you and it's I think I think London. I don't want to do down London because I, I love London as well. I love going up there and, and I, you know, I have a place in London. So I, cause a lot of my work is in London, but I do find it, it's like just the, tr- just the traffic and getting across London is, is getting worse and more onerous. Uh, you know, it took me, I, on a Saturday morning, I was giving a talk, um, in the afternoon. Uh, one of my, the last single dad I photographed, he runs a recording studio in Morden, which is on the end of the Northern line. And I was staying with my friends in in Walthamstow, and it took me two hours to drive from Walthamstow to Morden. You know, they are opposite ends of London, but it used to take an hour to get across. But it, I mean, this is really boring <laughs> for no, the podcast. No, no,
0: no. I'm, I'm interested. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, it's it's sort of. Um, I just think it's not. I think London's kind of. Uh, you know, post maybe it's post Brexit or there's a different atmosphere. It's it's sort of lost some of its, its pizzazz, you know, yeah, it has. generally, uh, but I definitely think people are friendlier up north as well. I don't That's, know how much... Okay, I'm gonna, track,
0: I'm gonna try, <laughs> try up north, I'm gonna try looking up north.
1: Yeah, but yeah. definitely definitely in America, you know, it's yeah. a different. I mean, although having said that, you know, there's lots of different... America's like lots of different countries, isn't it? So it's, yeah, yeah, it's, different states,
0: different, different kind of attitudes. Um, yeah yes um harry where can people find you on social media if they want to go into photography find a little bit more about you find out okay. some information about you where can they okay
1: so, you? so my so if there is anyone listening who is a is is basically thinking of getting divorced uh, or gone through that process and would like a free portrait um basically get in touch um i you know it is quite a challenging thing but and initially i think we were going to get like people that couples but i think that's going to prove too difficult so i'm actually going to just photograph individual people that are quite enlightened like i was because i i realized that basically it wasn't like my ex um was terminally ill or the children someone had got run over big deal you know she just wanted to be with someone else and that's cool you know and that's quite a lovely thing i mean and if you if you truly love someone you want them to be happy even if their plans don't involve you so you know it, it's basically people who are able to kind of learn and and, and able to talk about you know they're getting divorced but if they want to get in touch my my twitter is uh, harry borden that's b-o-r-d-e-n uh, uh, UK, I think it is on um, Twitter. So it's at Harry Borden UK. And then my Instagram is just Harry Borden. And then there's a Facebook page with Harry Borden. So B O R D E N.
0: Awesome. Harry, thank you so much and have a magnificent rest of your day.
1: All right. No, lovely, t- lovely to meet you. Um, good day. I'm